0: This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal or financial product advice.
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to My Millennial Money Medical. My name's Dev Raga, and I'm your host, and in this episode, we will go through some of the pitfalls associated with money and couples, which applies to whether you're married or not married, and then we'll focus on some of the things you can do to reduce the risk of having issues with money as a couple or a family. Then we have a question from Jason about big landmarks in a doctor's career. We can't do this podcast without the support of Altus Financial. If you're anything like me, you will understand that us medical professionals often have unique financial affairs, from taxation minimization requirements, multiple entities for accounting or asset protection for the extra risk we take on. Altus Financial understands these issues and more. Whether you're established in your career with a solid income and looking for next steps or you're after advice about buying into a practice, Altus Financial is for medical professionals who want to feel good about their finances. To speak with Altus Financial about your situation, click the link in the show notes or head to altusfinancial.com.au forward slash M3M. Let's get started. Now, if you want to discuss a specific topic or if you have a specific question, don't hesitate to contact me via Twitter or via Facebook. And for those of you that are new to the channel, don't forget there are three main aims, education, empowerment and entertainment. Now, to the main topic, money and couples. In the first part of this episode, we want to discuss some of the traps associated with money and couples. Then after the break, I'll discuss some strategies to avoid these traps. Now, I'm a doctor. I'm not a financial expert, nor am I a relationship counsellor. So take all of this and digest it and make sure you seek professional advice if you're actually having money problems as a couple. But before I talk about the traps, I thought I'd talk about some of the statistics in Australia. 60% of adults in Australia are married and 27% of those are not married. 8% are divorced and men are more likely to be married compared to women. Now, I found this statistic quite surprising. I would have thought it'd be the other way around. And women are more likely never to be married, and they're more likely to be divorced or more likely to be widowed. And I think the last statistic is probably because the average age or the median age of females in Australia is higher than uh, men. So, that's sort of more likely that if you are married, then the man is most likely to die before his wife. So... That's not an uncommon statistic. Uh, The ACT has the highest marriage rates, which I also thought was interesting. And Victoria has the highest singles rate. And Tasmania, unfortunately, has the highest divorce rate. And the average duration of marriage in Australia before divorce is 12.1 years. And that's the average duration to separation prior to divorce is around 8.4 years. Now what about COVID? Has COVID actually affected marriages in Australia? In 2021 statistics, that is, compared to 2019, there's been a 31% decline in marriages in Australia. And I think that's most likely due to lockdowns, because when you have lockdowns, you can't have weddings. And I think a lot of people didn't get married in 2020, and certainly in Victoria, parts of the lockdown in 2021 as well. And the long-term marriage rate, has actually been trending down since 20 years ago, which, again, unsurprising. So, you know, in year 2000, it was 5.9 marriages per 1,000 people. And in the year 2019, it was only 4.5 per 1,000 people. Now, having said this, the long-term divorce rates has also been trending down, which I found really surprising. Anecdotally, the general sort of people say divorce rates are really high in Australia and one in two marriages fail, all that sort of stuff. The divorce rates have actually been trending down. So, it was 2.8 per 1,000 in 1999 compared to just 1.9 per 1,000 in 2020, uh, which I found really, really surprising. Now, what about the financial positions of people that are married versus people that are not married? Unsurprisingly, if you're married, you tended to be in a better financial position. And married people cash savings was the highest at $36,000 on average. Um, And that was the highest amongst all demographics. If you're single, compare that, it's only $17,000, almost half. And if you're divorced, um, it's around $22,000. And unfortunately, if you're widowed, it's only $13,000. So, A widowed person has less savings in their account compared to a single person. Now, comparing to married people versus divorcees, the gap between the savers and spenders actually expands. That is, married people are more likely to be savers, while divorcees are more likely to be spenders. But overall, the savers in both categories outnumber the spenders. Okay, And about 25% of couples have lied to their partner about their spending habits. That's a pretty high figure. And out of those lies, it was mostly about debt, control of finances, or addiction, or secret purchases. And that includes drug addiction as well. And generally speaking, once you break up from your marriage or partner, people don't tend to live together anymore. And this makes complete sense given the number of breakups are mainly about money and can be about the financial infidelity associated with that. So it's no secret that money and relationships can be a huge blessing or a massive pain in the ass. Now, most of the stats I found was around marriage, but we know a lot of people live together and are not married. So if you have stats on those relationships and you're keen to share that with me, I'd be very interested to find out, but I just couldn't find them. And I guess, does marriage really make money matters worse or better? Well, the stats show they do enhance the financial situation of couples if they're married. But I don't have any objective data to compare this to couples who are unmarried. The data only shows about marriages versus divorce versus single people versus never married or separated people. So let's look at some of the traps associated with money and couples. Trap number one. The biggest financial value of being a couple is you can join forces financially, which enhances your lifestyle, enhances your borrowing capacity, and enhances your ability to invest larger sums of money. And sometimes if you have two working members of the relationship, it is tempting for each individual to manage their own finances. Then each individual can spend whatever they want from their own income. Now, although this sounds like a really good plan and a reasonable plan, the risk is it can build some resentment between the couples. And this can lead to financial infidelity, that is, couples hiding their spending, which can often spiral out of control. Of course, this sort of money management between couples can sometimes actually work. And it's important to find out what your money personality is. The other problem in this sort of couples financial management is what happens if one of the members wants to work less? Or loses their job? Or wants some time off work or perhaps a new career? How will it work? Who takes the primary burden of finances then? And if you're going to use this strategy, then contingencies need to be worked out clearly early in the relationship. So that's trap one. Trap two is, depending on your education or career, you may have debt which you would have brought into the relationship. Now I call that STD or sexually transmitted debt. Now, this could be consumer debts like credit cards, personal loans or help debts or even a home loan debt. If one member of the couple has more debt than the other, then it can cause a bit of problem in terms of debt servicing. Who takes a responsibility for the debt? Now, generally speaking in Australia, you are responsible for your own debts. Your partner isn't. But if you act as a guarantor and have a joint loan, then yes, both of you are responsible, even if you're separated and don't have a settlement sorted. You need to check this out with a financial advisor or a lawyer, especially about what happens to debt taken on after marriage. Is it shared or compared to debt brought into the relationship? Now, let's use an example to highlight this point. Amy and Jim are married, have a home together and two young kids. Things were going well for Jim's business. Amy is a physiotherapist. They have a joint line for their home. Unfortunately, Jim started gambling and accumulated gambling debts. As a result, his business suffered. He wasn't able to keep up his business demands and it failed. Amy decided to separate from Jim as Jim's gambling habits became worse and stayed in the family home. Jim moved out. Initially, Amy found it really difficult to keep up mortgage payments and all of the bills, even with some child support being received. Amy never went ahead with property settlement and things financially looked a lot better. Unfortunately, three years later, Amy got a letter stating Jim is bankrupt. Jim has authorised the bank to use the share of his house to pay off any remaining debts. This came as a surprise to Amy, as she thought that she had full control of the house. It turns out Amy is still responsible for the joint debts, because she never applied for a formal property settlement. Now, this is not an unusual example of how when the relationship fails, it's important to completely settle everything on paper rather than let things be for the convenience sake. In this case, Amy is likely having to move out of her family home because she's unable to buy out Jim's share, given that she would not be eligible for any more loans. And that needs to be worked out with the bank. And remember, if Amy was to buy out Jim's share, she would need to pay market rates because that's what the bank would want. Trap number three is your money personality can be a good thing or a bad thing for your relationships. Some people are natural savers, which means they can be perceived as cheapskates skimping on almost everything. Others are natural spenders, which means they can be perceived as flamboyant, which is essentially reducing their capacity to build wealth for the future. Now, obviously there has to be a balance. This is where I really like the 20% pay yourself concept, because once you've done this for your own money, you can blow all the money left over and at least your investments and retirement strategy is sound and safe. Trap four is the imbalance of power. Money begets power. In a couple relationship, if one person works for a living whilst the other person does unpaid work at home, who has the power? How does money distribution work in the relationship? Or both people in the relationship work, but one takes time off due to having children or whilst the other works, what happens then? The constant shifting of this power can pose a problem unless ground rules and discussions are had early in the relationship. Now, legacy wealth is also another issue. What if one person comes from a family of wealth or they've been helped by their family, for example, to buy a home? How will the power play work in the relationship? These are all valid questions to ask, ponder and sort out with an open, honest conversation about money in the relationship. And sometimes these conversations go really well and other times it's an absolute disaster, which of course comes to personalities of individuals. Trap number five. There's always going to be a discussion about having kids and how it impacts people's ability to achieve financial independence. Kids cost money, but they also mean reduction in work hours for at least one partner. And this can add money pressures, which therefore affects the relationships. This then affects marriage dynamics or partner dynamics and retirement expectations and lifestyle, etc., etc. Trap number six, extended family. Now, this is becoming more and more common and more and more of an issue, particularly in some cultures. Now, i arm of Indian heritage, it's absolutely common to think about extended family members when it comes to money. It's not uncommon that children support their parents in old age, even in Australia, for social supports and sometimes financial supports. It's widespread in the Asian culture. Trying to understand the expectations of each spouse about their involvement in the extended families is really important. It's probably more important if you're in an intercultural relationship, as for some cultures, this is a foreign concept. And it also works the other way. Her mum might be really well off buying expensive gifts for their kids, whilst his mother can't afford such expensive gifts. There are so many more issues when it comes to money, couples and families. And we've just talked about six potential traps. After the break, I want to discuss some potential ways to alleviate some of these traps, avoiding them or trying to solve them as best as possible.
0: Be right back. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash
1: Now, in the second half of the episode, let's tackle some of the things you can do when it comes to trying to avoid the money traps uh, and when it comes to couples and money. Number one, Don't lie about money. If you lie about money in your relationship, the obvious next question is, what else are you lying about? It's a really simple concept, but a very powerful one. Just like open and honest conversations and communication is essential for a good relationship, the same principles exist for good money relationships between couples. This means talking about how much each of you make, how much debt you have and what your money personality is. Part of the debt conversation has to be how you will pay off the debt, what strategies you will employ. Now, I've discussed about debt repayment strategies in episode 213. It talks about the basics of debt repayment. So if you're interested, go back and listen to that episode. That was a really obvious one, but probably I reckon the most important one. Don't lie about money. Number two is you may want to consider a binding financial agreement before your relationship gets serious or even after the wedding. I've discussed this concept in episode 208 in great detail. It's an icky conversation to have, but a worthwhile one if both of you are really keen to lay out some basic financial foundations. This is probably more important if it's your second or third relationship, marriage or not. Number three, have a plan for an extended family. This is important if your extended family is likely to rely on you for money issues. I think it's great to help out family members. It's a really nice thing to do, but you need to make sure your partner is in agreement. Perhaps a consent system to be established, or perhaps stating your wealth will just spend a set percentage of money on your extended family. Whatever it is, it has to be discussed upon prior rather than finding out five years after your wealth has been redistributed to your extended family without your consent. Now, when it comes to day to day stuff, there are three main ways you can manage money as a couple. Number one is you can have separate accounts. Number two is you can have joint accounts. Or number three is you may want to have a hybrid system. Let's discuss each concept one by one. Number one, separate accounts. This is when each person has their own accounts. They can use those accounts for their day-to-day expenses. They may wish to share the expenses like utilities, school fees, joint debt repayments, etc. And some couples may wish to split the expenses proportionately based on their income. Having separate accounts provides some autonomy, if they're individual money, if they're free to do what they wish to do, but also allows them to budget for joint expenses. The good thing about this system is it can be a fairer system. It accounts for individuals to pay off any debts they have brought into the relationships themselves, and it provides some autonomy and freedom of their own money. The bad thing is it gets complex when children become reality. For example, who pays for which child, as the expenses vary based on the age of the child. And usually by this time, most couples often have joint accounts anyway. But it may not be the case if the relationship is new and kids are from previous relationships, for example, a blended family. The second strategy is joint accounts, probably the most common thing most couples do. Money goes into the joint account and then expenses are taken out of that set account. Spreadsheets or budgets are maintained. They still pay themselves money, 20% of after-tax income, but themselves, family not the individual. Now, the pros are tracking expert expenditures is actually quite easier. Money management is easier. It's pretty stable as a family changes or grows. For example, you don't have to proportionate expenses based on your income. If one person takes a break from working due to kids and pregnancy, etc., it doesn't matter. You just adjust the budgets based on the new changed situation. The bad thing is it may lead to resentment from one person if they notice the other person is spending things on perhaps they shouldn't be. The office lunch, the daily coffee, or perhaps a gift for an extended family. Of course, this all depends on the money personality which we talked about, natural savers versus natural spenders. The third strategy is the hybrid model. This is when there's a joint account for retirement, investments, expenses, lifestyle, home expenses, kids' expenses, etc. But each person in the relationship gets to have a set percentage of the total income into their own private savings account. That money can be used for themselves to spend money on whatever they wish. Their individuals and relationships can spend their personal fund money on whatever they wish, including giving to extended family, as long as the joint account is not touched in case they have outspent their personal fund. The good thing about this is all the benefits of joint accounts with some personal autonomy which we all kind of want and need to some extent. The bad thing is it's kind of an allowance model, which can come across as a transactional way of managing relationships. The bottom line is there's no perfect way to manage finances as a couple or a family. Eventually you will find your style and most of these styles just evolve over time. Keep the principles the same, don't lie about money, protect yourself with a binding financial agreement if you think it's required and think about a separate, joint or hybrid account model for the day-to-day living expenses. Now, I'm very much a person who thinks you need to work out your own style. This notion that once married, that everything is ours, works for some people, but it absolutely doesn't work for other people. So it's okay. Discuss, plan and execute. Now, hopefully that provides you some basic traps and basic strategies to overcome uh, when it comes to managing money as a couple or a family. Now, Defraga isn't a marriage counsellor, nor am I a financial advisor, so please take this as basic frameworks and do some of your own research and learning. So some of the resources that I found really useful to help me prepare for this episode was MoneySmart website, which is an Australian government-sponsored website. Uh, There's another website called Financial Rights Legal Centre. Ramsey Solutions from Dave Ramsey. These views are a little bit out there. Investopedia often has really, really great articles on this subject. And Finder. Surprisingly, finder.com.au had a lot of information about this sort of stuff, particularly when it comes to statistics. So couples, money, complex topic, hopefully that provides you with some framework to build on and do some research on. Now, before we go on to finish up with the uh, episode, I have a question from Jason who asks, hi, Dev, great podcast and congrats on a big following. Could you talk about financial decisions around big landmarks in a doctor's career and how you might alter what you do, what extra considerations there may be, for example, internship, residency, registrarship, consultancy, buying the first home and planning for children? Now, thanks, Jason. That's a great question. And it's a very interesting question. It's a very specific question relating to doctors, but I guess it kind of relates to any profession that has a significant lag time in training. Uh, I'm not sure what the training time is for other professions like uh, lawyers or engineers. Um, you know, For example, if, if you're a nurse, once you become a nurse, there's heaps of career progression opportunities, uh, particularly in the executive field or if you want to be a nurse practitioner, there's more years of study. So it can lag on for a significant number of years. So I guess although this question kind of focuses on doctors, um, I think the concepts are very similar to most professions that have you know, greater than five to six years of training time. Now, doctors do train for an extended period of time. So to understand this question, let's briefly address the career progression of a doctor in the traditional sense, okay? So most doctors get into medicine either after year 12 or after finishing their primary undergraduate degree. And the total training time to become a doctor in Australia is around five to eight years, depending on which pathway you take and provided you pass everything the first go. Now, the attrition rate and the failure rate in medicine is actually quite high. So, you know, you may not pass the first attempt, but, you know, most people do and, um, you know, hopefully you do. So, let's take the quickest route, which is five to eight years. Now, you need to do what's called an internship once you finish your medical school and that's one year. So, now that takes you to six to nine years of training before you actually finish your internship. Until you finish your internship, you do not get a full general registration. Now, this means after that initial sort of five to eight years, you start earning some money. So, as an intern, you earn money. And after six to nine years, you have achieved what's called full registration. So, when you're an intern, often you are a training doctor uh, in the, you know, stricter sense, and your registration with APRA is actually a provisional registration. And then you get this sort of letter in the mail saying, congratulations, you finished internship, blah, blah, blah and you sort of graduate and you become a real doctor. Internship is like a big exam. You get assessed at every rotation and usually there are five rotations. Um, I don't think that's changed very much um, in the last sort of, I guess, 14 years that I've been a doctor. Once you finish internship in Victoria, you become what's called a resident medical officer or HMO, hospital medical officer. Um, I think in other states, they might be called, you know, um, house residents or house officers or whatever it is. And as a resident, basically, you know, you can spend about two to four years, depending on what type of specialty you want to get into. Because before you get into a particular specialty, you need to do some rotations to qualify for that specialty. So, now we're up to about eight to 13 years post-planning for medical school. And then you get into a specialty... And you become a registrar, which is basically an official training position in an accredited college. Everything from general practice to neurosurgery, whatever it is. And registrarship is usually around two to six years, depending on the specialty. So, now we're starting to really add up. Now we're up to 10 to 19 years post-planning for medical school. And then you become a consultant. So after consultancy, you may want to do one to two years of fellowship in some specialties. In fact, it's almost mandatory in some specialties, particularly surgery, uh, paediatrics and physician training, etc. where the expectation may be to travel overseas for one to two years after your consultancy to do what's called a fellow year. Um, and what that does is, It brings opportunities. You get international experience. Sometimes people travel interstate as well. It just really enhances your CV after you return back to Australia or back to your home state. And often you see in, you know, doctor CVs, they may say, you know, I went to Germany and did a one-year fellowship in a particular specialty that is very famous in Germany, for example, right? So now you're up to 12 to 21 years post-planning, for medical school. See how the years add up now. And and, and I guess for Jason's sake, I'm just slowing it down because I just want everyone to understand that it is a long haul and it takes time. Now, assume you start you're planning your medical school at the age of 18, fresh off high school, you'll be around 30 to 39 years before you finish your entire training as a fully fledged consultant doctor, roughly around 30 to 39 years. If you're a consultant doctor before the age of 30, you've done really well. That means you've just absolutely blitzed it. Most people are in the early to mid 30s when they become consultants in their specialty. And it's important to note that you will earn money though along the way. So it's not all that bad, but it's a long time. And if you don't plan for those years, you'll end up becoming a consultant with little to no investment, no super and no assets under your belt. So, to answer the first part of the question then, financial decisions around big landmarks in a doctor's career, here's what you shouldn't do. Do not wait until you finish your entire training before thinking about investing. Now, we've just, you know, I've just highlighted that it's a potential 21-year training program as a doctor. And we know that the power of compounding is phenomenal. The earlier you start, the longer you invest, so please don't wait until you finish your medical training before you start investing. Start saving, start investing, start maximizing super, start getting rid of consumer debt. Better yet, don't borrow money and do it all that early. I talk to doctors regularly who make this mistake of waiting because they think their incomes will be high enough when they finish their entire training and they can wait to start saving and investing. And look, it's true. Doctors' income on average are relatively high. But it's the waiting that absolutely destroys their financial wealth. So why is that wrong? Why shouldn't you wait? The reason is finances is all about behaviours. It's not about knowledge. If you don't have behaviours right from the start it's very difficult to adapt later in life. You must save, you must invest, you must maximize super, and you must have tax efficiencies early in your career. So when you achieve fellowship, you won't struggle to understand these concepts. And it'll be very easy to adapt to post-fellowship life. Now, that concept doesn't really matter whether you're a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, a nurse, a podiatrist, a physiotherapist, it doesn't matter. Start early and be consistent. Now, the second part of the question is buying a home and planning for kids. Traditionally, you may wish to have children before you finish your entire training, although some doctors choose to do this after their fellowship. So once they become consultants is when they start planning to have children. Now, personally in my life, We had children during my training. Um, We had kids in our late 20s. And me and my wife made this conscious decision because we did not want to be in our 50s dealing with young children because the dynamics just didn't work for us. We thought about it, we planned it out, and we thought having kids in our late 20s uh, was the best strategy for us. Personally, I want to be in my 50s, retired. So... At my current projections, I'm going to be well and truly financially independent by the time I'm 50. And I don't really want to be worried about young kids at that age. Now, that's an entirely personal decision, so it's hard to give you an answer here. But if you started early in investing and saving and maximising super, then planning for children and first-time is just really, really easy because you've got money. Now, ensure you find out about the 1st home onus grants in your state for example, it's usually $10,000, I think, depending on your state. Although with a new budget, uh, there may be more money there. And there are some super schemes to take advantage of as well. It allows first-time buyers to save homes, sorry, save money for their first home uh, deposit inside their super, uh, enjoying some tax concessions. But the biggest point I want to make for doctors or anyone who has a training road ahead of them is do not wait to invest. Start early. Do it regularly, do it often, and ensure you create those financial behaviours so when you do become a fully-fledged doctor that's a consultant fellow, everything is much easier. The number of doctors I talk to who are financially destroyed is quite staggering. The biggest misconception of financial behaviour that doctors exhibit is, and I quote, I will make a lot of money when I finish training, therefore it doesn't really matter what I do with money now. Wrong, wrong, wrong and very wrong. And lastly, whatever you do, please don't buy an expensive brand new car when you finish your fellowship. Yes, you've trained for 19 or 20 years, whatever it is, and you want to buy a $100,000 car at the start of your fellowship life, that's a recipe for financial ruin as a doctor. Here's Here's a simple thing that you can do. When you're an intern, live like a medical student. When you're a resident, live like an intern. When you're a registrar live like a resident and when you're a consultant live like a registrar at least for the first five years of your post consultancy life if you just did that and saved money and invested those differences and exponential rise in income you'll be completely fine now no one cares more for your money better than you do once you're a fully fledged doctor you may be a target for financial scams or financial offerings from various financial charlatans. You become vulnerable. Now, I don't mind getting financial advice. I think it's good that people get financial advice. And I think it's good to have accountants or professionals managing your money and wealth and making sure that they teach you. They take you on a journey of financial independence rather than take the attitude of, here's my portfolio, you manage it, and I don't want to know anything about it. I completely trust you. That's how you lose money. There's been many a times when doctors have just been swindled out of their wealth for doing exactly this. Not just doctors, just people who just don't really pay attention to their money. So when you go seek that advice, make sure the person that's providing the advice obviously is qualified, but also is an educator, trying to teach you, trying to take you on a journey of financial independence. And just because you're a doctor and achieved an ATAR of 99.95 or whatever HSE result you got and you become the ducks of your medical school doesn't mean you will automatically grasp everything about money and finances instantly. In fact, most of the doctors I speak to have very limited understanding of how money, finances and investing works. Because your medical skills, as tough as they may be, are not transferable to the world of finance. I hope this answers your question. And I'm sorry to have to explain that achieving wealth for any profession, including a doctor, is exactly the same save, invest, rinse and repeat. And it's very, very boring. Now, thanks very much for listening. My name's Dev Raga. Make sure that you leave a five-star review on Apple Podcast or whatever platform you may be using to listen to this episode or maybe five-star reviews on all of the podcasting platforms. That's even better. Please leave a positive review. I love reading reviews. Um, and if you have any feedback, then contact me directly via Facebook or Twitter. I'm really keen to hear about feedback. The more ratings and reviews you leave, the more people get access to the podcast. And of course, keep them coming. My name's Dev Raga, and this is My Millennial Money Medical. And until next time, please make sure you stay safe.